0: Welcome to the c Podcast. I'm clinical editor Christopher Stewart. Probiotic use is often greeted with disdain or confusion. What do you actually know about their use? I spoke to Professor Simon Gaysford from the School of Pharmacy at University College London to find out what evidence exists for probiotics, what they should be used for and about his latest work.
1: So a probiotic is defined by the World Health Organization as any bacterium which confers a health benefit to the host. And so what that means is it's quite difficult to understand what a probiotic is actually doing because the definition is so vague. And therefore, no one really knows. And so I think the best reason for taking a probiotic is if you've got some sort of gut condition, the, the most obvious one is a degree of bloating, you feel uncomfortable. So you think you want to try something which is not a medication. So people try probiotics to try and alleviate gut symptoms. And I think bloating is the most obvious one.
0: Um, Why do we follow the World Health Organization definition of probiotics? Is there other ones out there which maybe add a bit more to the definition?
1: I'm not sure that there are. I mean, you can define these things however you want to. And there are some definitions that the FDA is trying to use. So next-generation probiotics and live biotherapeutic products. The difference between the two is that a next-generation probiotic is a species which confers a health benefit to the host, but it hasn't actually been identified yet. But, so in other words, you've got to pick a species, you've got to do a clinical test, and you've got to go, this is the improvement in someone's health that this has conferred. And a live biotherapeutic product is one that's been genetically altered to produce something. So in the way that E. coli is often modified to make antibiotics, you can imagine giving a bacterium to someone which is producing some compound which is beneficial for their health.
0: Biotherapeutic doesn't rule off the tongue like probiotic. Yeah. No,
1: I think that that's true. But then to come back to the original point, which was about definitions and benefits and so on, there's so much misinformation around probiotics, and there are so many claims that are made for probiotic-containing products and they are not governed under pharmaceutical regulations, they are food supplements, that the situation is so bad that the word probiotic is not allowed to be used on consumer products. So if you look at a consumer product that you might buy in the supermarket, it will not have the word probiotic on it. And, and the fact that we still use the word probiotic is kind of a legacy, and it's an easy word to use, um, but we're not allowed to use it uh, in any commercial sense anymore. So that doesn't help. And I think the reason we all go to the World Health Organization definition is because it's the one that's the, the most generic, but the most useful. Yeah. It, it doesn't specify bacterial species or strain. It just says you swallow something,
0: there should be no adverse effects, and there should be a benefit to your health. You talked about misinformation. What evidence is there behind the you, you sort of... So-called probiotics. Yeah.
1: There are literally thousands of research papers where people study the effects of probiotics. And there is so much bad science that so many people don't believe in the concept of probiotics that it got to the point when the use of the word probiotics has been banned. But I think that position is changing now. And so we and other groups are doing work to look at the positive effects of probiotic therapy. We try and look at quantitative effects that the bacteria can produce. And in producing some good underpinning science, I think that the view of probiotics is changing slightly. There's no getting away from the fact that a lot of consumers, and certainly the medical profession, view probiotics with scepticism. When I teach probiotics to our undergraduates, I often say that probiotics are often viewed along with homeopathic remedies in the pharmaceutical sector (laughs) in that a lot of claims are made for both and they're very unsubstantiated and so I just think that one of the problems with probiotics is this degree of misconception and skepticism around them
0: it's clear that there's a potential behind it because there's this sort of veil of uncertainty then all of that sort of like portion of medicine potential medicine is just like painted with the same brush.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I think that I don't think that the understanding of probiotics has changed a lot in the last few years. I think we and other groups have done a a bit more quantitative science, but the general perception that they're ineffective in many cases isn't changing yet. yet. But what I do think is important is that there's an understanding of how the gut microbiota itself influences and controls general health and well-being. And there's an increasing body of evidence that links certain bacterial groups to um, health conditions. It's been linked to Parkinson's, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel disease, multiple sclerosis. You You can link dysbiosis in your gut to all sorts of conditions. And so that has driven research into trying to understand which species are there in patients with certain diseases... And the way that you do that is you take lots of patients with a particular disease and you sequence their gut microbiota and you go, well, this group have got an elevated number of these bacteria. Therefore, this is an indicator of, that you might use to see if someone's got a disease. And the second question is then what is it that those bacteria are either producing or doing in the body to, to influence or control the disease? And that knowledge is very poorly understood.
0: I wanted to ask about medicines which you can potentially get either prescribed or Mm over-the-counter. Can you tell me first about the sort of prescribed probiotics, Mm. for lack of a better word? Yeah, there's lack of
1: a better word and lack of better products. So there are very few prescribable probiotics. The only one that I know has a clinical indication is VSL3, and it has limited indication for pouchitis. And I'm not even sure that's a NICE recommendation. I think it's a local commissioning group recommendation that VSL3 can be used in some circumstances.
0: And in general, does NICE have a stance on probiotic use? So NICE did a review
1: recently, and for some patients with irritable bowel syndrome, it does recommend taking a probiotic supplement. It doesn't indicate which one you should take, and it doesn't indicate for how long. But it just indicates that you... If you feel like you get an improvement in symptoms by taking a probiotic supplement, then, then it supports that. Otherwise, it doesn't make indications. Um, what it does suggest is that um, probiotics are classified as microbial food substances. Uh, in a way, that's part of the problem. So the pharmaceutical industry is very highly regulated, and the products that come through, they're very tightly defined, they're very tightly manufactured. And they have to be demonstrated to be effective in clinical trials. And probiotics cross a border between a food substance and a pharmaceutical substance. And so they generally get classified as, as a food supplement. And then it's, it's down to the patient to decide whether the product is right for them or not. And the manufacturer can't make health claims.
0: Obviously, it's important that the, the patient can make a decision themselves. So for pharmacists and their teams... Mm what advice can you give them by either stocking or supplying probiotic products in the in the pharmacy?
1: Yeah, so so I'm head of pharmaceutics in, at UCL and pharmaceutics is the science of making medicines. And so one of the reasons we started looking at probiotics in the first place was one, to understand how they're formulated, two, to make sure that if they're formulated, how should they be formulated to exert an effect in the patient? And then three, to be able to advise patients, if they want to buy a product, what sort of product should they buy? So when we did our initial testing, we simply bought some products from our local pharmacy. We asked ourselves the question, what challenges do these products face when a consumer takes them? And then we tested to see what happened. And we decided that the principal challenge is the stomach. It's full of acid and it is designed to degrade everything that you swallow to prevent you becoming very sick. And so essentially in our testing, we took products from the pharmacy, we added them to a small volume of hydrochloric acid, and we added them in the way that the manufacturer suggested. So if the manufacturer says, take with a glass of water, we added a glass of water. If it was a liquid product, we just put the liquid stream. And we simply let the product sit in acid for up to 30 minutes. And then we had a look to see how many bacteria were viable at the end and how they grew And what we discovered was if you buy a freeze-dried product, that might be a sachet or a capsule or a tablet, something where the bacteria themselves have been desiccated before formulation, we didn't see a lot of activity in those products. So I want to be clear that if you take one of those products and you put them into a microbiology lab and you resuspend them carefully in a buffer, you will recover the bacteria. And it's a classical way of storing bacteria in culture collections is to freeze-dry. But that is not the same as a patient swallowing a product into acid. And if you took one of these products to a microbiology lab and you tried to rehydrate them in acid, you will also discover a very poor recovery of viable bacteria. So one of the key findings from our study was that if a patient is going to buy a product, we recommend they buy a liquid-based product rather than a solid product. And the reason is simply because otherwise you're asking the bacteria to rehydrate in a strong acid solution. After that, I think our recommendation to patients is that they buy a liquid-based product. And there are a number on the market. In fact, there's a growing number on the market. My experience is every time I go to the supermarket and I look at the sort of functional dairy product section, there is a new product. Yeah. Um, and it seems to change on a daily basis. Most of those products are formulated in some sort of dairy medium. Might be a milk, might be a yoghurt. There's not a massive difference between those as far as I see. They're predominantly aqueous-based. As you go towards yogurts, you've got an increasing fat content, but otherwise they're essentially similar. And there are some water-based products as well that you can find. And there's also kefir, which tends to be a water-based product as well. So our recommendation to patients is if you're going to try a product, and I think a lot of patients can benefit by trying a product, that they buy a liquid-based product. After that, I think a patient should look at The bottle and they should see which bacteria are in the product. We don't really have a lot of evidence to say that there are certain bacteria that do need to be there and don't need to be there. The majority of products on the market contain a mixture of species. Typically, there'll be lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. And so it's worth looking at the jar and seeing what it contains. And it's worth making sure that you get one with as many bacteria as possible because you might as well try and maximize your chance of, of getting viable bacteria and then the only other thing we recommend to patients is to try and minimize the length of time that the product sits in your stomach acid it's pretty clear that for nearly every product we tested the longer it sits in acid the fewer viable bacteria there are at the end and so what we say to patients is take the product in a way that minimizes residence time in the stomach and to do that we recommend fasted state so if someone says to us you know what I only want to take this once a day, when should I take it? We usually recommend first thing in the morning when you get up, before you clean your teeth, before you do anything, go to the fridge, swallow the probiotic, carry on with getting up, have a shower, clean your teeth, get dressed, go back to the kitchen and have breakfast if you want, because in that time your stomach's probably emptied. One of the things that came out of our testing is that we... we exposed the products to acid for this increasing period of time we went up to 30 minutes and then we take this the product and we put it into a growth medium which is effectively a nutrient uh, broth designed to encourage bacteria to grow and we simply ask the question how fast do the bacteria grow and so depending on how long the products have sat in acid we can see growth somewhere between six hours to 24 hours and it's an interesting question then to say in vivo yeah. what does that mean if if we see growth after 24 hours what does that mean for a patient would they have excreted it in that time and so we usually say you know we prefer to recommend products where we see growth within 6 to 12 hours it seems a reasonable time yeah. that a product might remain in the gut but it's totally variable patient to patient
0: do you want to tell me a bit more about the recent paper you published mm.
1: Yeah. So one of the reasons there's so much misinformation about probiotics, I think, two reasons. One is a lot of products are badly formulated. And so you can take them, but I don't believe that you're really delivering appreciable numbers of bacteria to the gut to have an effect. So formulation is key. And the other one is it's very difficult in vivo to determine exactly what's going on. Everybody's gut contains thousands of different species of bacteria. And yours will be different from mine and we will be different from anyone we randomly select on the street. Secondly, a lot of those species in the gut have never been identified and have never been cultured in the laboratory. And part of the reasons for that is it's difficult to isolate them. But it's also your gut is a very specific set of conditions, very anaerobic, for instance. And so culturing in the laboratory is very difficult. And so people don't really know what species are already there how to measure the effect of these things in vivo. There was a big study published earlier in the year by an Israeli group, I think, where they looked. They clinically, surgically took samples from patients taking probiotics and they said that there was no evidence that the probiotics were arriving in the gut and were colonizing. So as it happens, at the same time that they were publishing that set of data, we were doing a very big study with a simulated system. So we kind of take the view that To make a measurement in a human would be ideal, but it's very difficult. And so what we've done is the next best thing. And so we worked with a Belgian company, which has a model gut system. And it is essentially a series of reactor vessels, each one representative of a certain stage of the human gut. The last two vessels contain fecal slurries from human donors. And the way the system is set up is that those faecal samples are dispersed in a buffer the bacterial groups are allowed to recover colonize stabilize so you effectively have a human gut microbiota at the end and then you add your probiotic to the system and it starts with a stomach stage then a small intestinal stage and then two sections of colon
0: Using basically submitting them to acid to see how it survives and then against yeah. other colony bacteria which are naturally there
1: yeah that's right. So the first stage is stimulating the stomach and the bacteria stay in that stage for 45 minutes. Then they empty into two vessels which simulate the small intestine and then they empty into two further vessels, one which represents the proximal colon and one which rest- represents the distal colon. And uh, Then what you do is you add your product at the start. It was dosed on a daily basis for three weeks to simulate how a patient would really take this product. And then the analysis can be performed in the two final vessels. And we can do multiple analyses. So in this instance, we did a number of things. One key chemical that we looked for was lactate. And the reason we did that is because the product that we were testing contains a lot of lactobacilli. And lactobacilli, when they metabolise, they produce lactic acid. Lactic acid is, as the name implies, an acid. And so it tends to lower the pH of the medium in which it's sitting. And so by measuring both the pH and the lactate concentration, we get an indirect measure of how the probiotics are performing. And so we found that daily dosing with the probiotic increased the lactate concentrations significantly and also had a pH-lowering effect. So that was the first thing we found. Then what we found, interestingly, is that the gut bacteria that were already present in the microbiota... So remember, the microbiota has come from human donors. Yeah. It contains a vast number of different bacterial groups. And broadly, it contains six main families of bacterial groups. And what we found was the probiotics arrived and produced lactic acid... But the lactic acid is a substrate for the gut bacteria that are already there. And so we found that the commensal gut bacteria, those are called. So the commensal gut bacteria saw the lactate, took it on board, metabolized that lactate, grew in number. And as they grew, they themselves produced a number of byproducts. And the byproducts they produce are called short-chain fatty acids. And those would be acetate, propionate and butyrate. So what we found was a cascade effect. The probiotic arrived, it grew, and it produced lactate. But the lactate was then used as a food substance by the commensal gut bacteria, and they in turn produced acetate, propanate, and butyrate. So the headline from the study really was that daily dosing of a probiotic effectively increased the short-chain fatty acids in the gut, particularly butyrate. And butyrate is linked to all sorts of um, health and well-being in humans. And we found that the commensal gut bacteria flourished in response to the arrival of the probiotics. And when we looked at the familial groups after treatment with this probiotic, we actually managed to change the proportion of those bacterial groups so that those groups that utilised the lactate flourished. And so we effectively rebalanced the bacterial groups in our model system. it's quite quite a lot it takes me back to my lectures Um, (laughs) and there will be an exam on
0: this at the end of this podcast straight after this (laughs) Yes, Um, right who are you working with for the the project so the
1: probiotic is a UK based company in Farnham it's called Simprove it's a water based product and it contains four um, probiotics three of which are lactobacilli. and the company that has the model system is called ProDigest
0: um, and how do you sort of see the future of probiotics based on sort of research which is going on yeah. in your labs and sort of worldwide, I guess?
1: Yeah, so for me, as I alluded to earlier, the, key, the two key elements are formulation of the product and the formulation has to provide a degree of protection to stomach acid. Yeah. And so the reason we're so interested is because we are a pharmaceutics department and we want to make sure that if patients buy products, they buy a properly formulated product. And I think that if all probiotics were formulated in such a way as they provided protection from stomach acid, we would have a different view of probiotics. I think a lot of the misinformation and scepticism comes from poorly performing products.
0: Do you think there's a desire from maybe the manufacturers and I guess the pharmacies buying them in for non-liquid ones because they maybe have a longer shelf life?
1: I agree. And I think that the pharmaceutical industry, in this country at least, is totally wedded to the idea of tablets and capsules. And so are the patient groups. And so you go into a pharmacy expecting a tablet or a capsule. And really, our findings are that those are not the most appropriate formulation strategies for probiotics. If I can change public perception of that, that would be tremendous.
0: So Some goal. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that would be some goal, yeah. So that, that's number one. And the second thing is we're discovering that the microbiota in humans is important. And it influences a vast array of things. And if you were to ask me over the next 10 years, how do I think this field is going to change? I'm not sure that the probiotics field is going to change very much. But understanding of how the gut microbiota influences human health and well-being, that's going to change enormously. And one of the key things from our recent study is that we we did everything three times with three human donors, three different human donors. In all cases, they were healthy donors with no recordable disease conditions. And yet, we still managed to change the diversity of the gut microbiota by treatment with Simprove. Since then, we have done a number of follow-up studies, which have only recently been finished. Wednesday, in fact. (laughs) And I only saw the data yesterday. But those patient groups in the new study, three patients with liver cirrhosis, three patients with irritable bowel syndrome, three patients with uh, Parkinson's disease, And in all cases, when we treated the microbiota with SimProof, we caused a significant change in the diversity of the bacterial groups. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure. I think that as, as we understand more about how the gut microbiota influences certain conditions, we will understand whether a degree of dysbiosis in the gut microbiota is really important to some of these disease states. And what we're finding with this particular product is that we can control that degree of biodiversity and we can influence it by giving probiotics. And the way I like to think about it is the probiotic arrives, it produces lactic acid, and that's a substrate for all the good bacteria that are in your gut. It allows those good bacteria to flourish. What you've got to remember with your gut bacteria is that everything you eat is a substrate for your gut. It's easy to think... I've just eaten a donut and therefore I've got a lot of blood glucose. But the reality of the situation is your gut microbiota have got a lot of glucose and they get first dibs at it. And, and that would encourage them to metabolize and produce a lot of other compounds. And those are the ones that you're going to absorb. And so you're really, everything you eat is feeding your gut. And the way I like to view the probiotics is that it's providing a nutrient source which is allowing your good bacteria to flourish, irrespective of what else you might eat that does damage or what sort of disease state that you have. And so my general view of probiotic therapy, and I've started using the word therapy, is that it allows your gut bacteria to recover to a position of natural equilibrium. And I think that's going to be a really critical step in in alleviating symptoms of some of the disease states and maybe even... I won't go as far as curing, but if I say, you know, making patients feel a lot better, and maybe that can be followed up with medical treatment. But I think that's how the future is going to work. And
0: then just quickly as a final question, what should healthcare professionals do if patients approach them and ask them the difference between good and bad bacteria?
1: Yeah, is, well, the, the question is, you yeah, know, the question of what is a good bacteria and what is a bad one is very open-ended. So if I give an example, E. coli. Everyone's heard of E. coli. E. coli are defined in some instances as probiotics. But in other cases, they can give you very serious food poisoning. And so, you know, each individual strain of a bacterium can be good or bad, depending on what it's producing. So essentially, what will happen is as it grows, a bacterium is going to excrete metabolic waste products. And depending on what those are, your body is either going to ignore them, use them or react to them. And so, the thing about bacteria being good or bad is about what they're producing in your body. And I just think that knowledge is not there yet. And that's difficult. And so, I think that with probiotic therapy, it's about allowing your bacteria to recover to a natural position. And in so doing, the compounds that are being produced are the sort of compounds that your body's used to dealing with, and everything comes back into balance. So, I think a pharmacist asks a question about what's good and what's bad that's difficult to answer. But I do think it's um, fair to say that a probiotic probably will confer some sort of benefit if you choose one that's formulated properly, and that you take it in the right way.
0: <laughs> yeah. That was Professor Simon Gatesford from UCL discussing all things probiotic. Don't forget to subscribe and read the CND podcast on iTunes or your preferred Android app. Thanks for listening.